Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for the podcast. Justin? Yep. Uh, we've got a problem. Right. Ian isn't here. Uh, what? <laughs> what do you mean he's not here? He's always here. Yeah, he is, except now when he's not. I suppose, really, given the theory of infinite universes, this has to happen somewhere, so it's happening here. Uh, but yeah, it's just, just you and me this week, so... Uh, Let's talk about Doctor Who. No, that would be mean. <laughs> that would be mean indeed, and also a squand- squandering a, a, an opportunity because uh, obviously uh, this podcast started many moons ago. Um, not quite a year, obviously, because we do one a week and we haven't reached the magic fifty-two yet. But when this podcast started, it was just me and Ian, and so you've you've come along to join us as the eighties began. It was kind of like the band got together it was very blues brothers in a way um and and then you know we kind of rolled on from there and i do feel that uh i mean we we did a number of shows where we talked about me and Ian and have subsequently done things where we we talked about stuff you know like the story arcs episode and and stuff like that um where i think people have really got to know uh me and Ian a lot so uh maybe this is an opportunity to do a show that way. So what we were going to talk about, um, it's a bit like uh, Ian and his Doctor Who obsession. We seem to always talk about visual things, but then you are an artist, and so you have your own opinion about things. Uh, so we were going to have a look at some directors, some films. We are going to talk quite a bit about comic book adaptations, uh, probably, but that's because this is a translation or a medium where visual goes from, from one to another. But... Um, uh, maybe we shouldn't start there, actually, because you were talking about Brazil, weren't you, uh, as as one of your favourite movies? Uh, well, yes. Well, 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 you're talking about kind of visual films. I mean, certain directors are known for their kind of style, and Terry Gilliam is, is certainly up there for someone who is kind of obsessed with creating, you know, this particular look and image. And, I mean, you know, and it's you could put um, Tim Burton in the same bracket, and it's a no, it's not a coincidence that both these people are animators because that kind of artistic eye, you know, creates kind of these kind of visions. So yeah, Brazil, I mean, is, is one of my favorite films. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I was just going to say, I mean, yeah, the interesting thing about it is that I think, do you get a feeling? I mean, cause for me, the last time Tim Burton made a, a really properly, properly good movie with, with no sort of, you know, sort of underlying. For me, his his best movies are probably Beetlejuice, Mars Attacks, Batman's all right. The first one, second one's all right as well. But he has, for me, he hasn't really done anything that made me go, "Ooh, that's good." In in decades, uh, but do you have uh, a different? 
I feel there's a bit of kind of burden fatigue I get really with him in that he's setting up on his style and then because he's obsessed with that look and the same actors in it, after a while, everything just begins to kind of just turn into the same thing for me. So I've got a bit bored with Tim Burton as it's gone on. Um, so certainly the recent ones, I've all got, gone to see them. Um, but they kind of, you know exactly what you're getting. And, and that's it. That's what he does. You know, there's going to be, you know, a reduced palette. There'll be blacks and whites and reds. There'll be Tim, uh, there'll be, uh, you know, Johnny Depp, Ella Carter. And you know, and 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 something gothic, and that and that's it really. And if you like, if you love that stuff, fine. You're just going to get in the same stuff. But I, yeah, I mean, I agree. The the surprise that you got from seeing um, Beetlejuice and uh, uh, Mars Attacks, I think you know, and that kind of stands out really because that's a very different look anyway, uh, much more gearish kind of thing than he does. Um, I, I enjoy, I do enjoy Tim Burton films, but I must admit. Um, it is a law of diminishing returns with me. I like Sleepy Hollow, um, but that's probably going back a little way now. I mean, actually, I've got, um, I actually got the DVD for Christmas, the recent one, the Dark Shadows, which I have yet to see. Have, uh, you, not, have you not seen Dark Shadows? No, I will see it. I mean, I just, when I saw that advertise and went, here's my, you know, Tim Burton checklist, you know, yes, it's got all those qualities. Um, and probably the reason why I didn't go running to the cinema, because I just thought, well, here we go, you know, yes, I know what I'm going to get. I will, I will see it. Yes. But I think probably it's fair to say, I think that maybe the golden period of his is kind of, is gone. I think that's, you know, there was an outburst in the eighties, all Edward Scissorhands is an amazing film and, and, you know, this kind of stuff. And then it kind of, he's just, you know, churning it out, but you know, um, hey, he's, he's found his thing, you know, and he likes to, he obviously likes to make films is, and he likes to put his visual stamp on things and create those kind of imagery. Um, and I, I mean, if we just, I, I like direct, he's like an auteur in that respect, kind yeah. of like I'm director. You know what you're getting from. So I like that aspect of him and I do like his designs. I do like his visual style, but I am less enthralled than I used to be. So uh, if we shift across to Gilliam, yeah. my experience of Gilliam is that even if it's, you know, the the movie itself is like, yeah, all right, that didn't quite hit the mark, I can't get past the fact that it it rem- every film remains interesting, even does, if it doesn't really work. Does. I mean, there is a kind of a type of look to his stuff, but it's never, you know, it's never exactly the same. It's kind of intense and crazy about his things but yeah I think he's varied he's always looking for I mean I've got a soft spot for Terry Gilliam because because he's you know he's the most unlucky director in Hollywood and and the stories of his of, of his films that he makes are as interesting as the finished product there's always some amazing kind of situations that happen whenever he tries to make films and I like that you know that's kind of somehow the gods have decided to <laughs> kind of give him this curse, but he's also a boon, you know, because he's memorable. And, um, I've got a, I, yeah, I'm, I, 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 there's not many Terry Gilliam films I don't like, actually. I, I like the madness of it. I like someone who's that crazy. They have a vision and they are prepared to go beyond the limit of sanity to get that film done. 
Yeah, well, I, yeah, I mean, I have to say, I don't think that the Terry Gilliam... I mean, yes, it is true that there are a lot of hard luck stories about Terry Gilliam trying to shoot movies, but I don't think it's a curse. Uh, if we're going to be honest, I think that he does do it to himself, not in a bad way, but because it's actually part of his craft, is that he says, well, nobody else would go and film... You know, for example, you know, the famous Lost in La Mancha where he was trying to shoot, you know, the, the Don Quixote movie and then everything got swept away by floods and God knows what. A lot of other people would go, well, we could go there and film there, but you know, we don't know any technical crews out there and we don't know, we, you know, nobody wants, you know, it's not the 70s anymore. You don't have to film. You can CGI it in. You can get a look. And so they, you know, I think a lot of filmmakers, you go to uh, Brett Ratner and say make a film of Don Quixote and he'll go and shoot it in a back lot with a green screen and then get visual references of the place that he wants and fill it in afterwards. Job yeah. done. You know, um, the budget will escalate for other reasons. But um, Terry Gilliam was like, no, you can't do that. You actually have to film that in order to get the, the right mood, the right feeling you have to do. And everybody goes, he's crazy. It's like, well, is he crazy? Well, what? I mean, that's it's, it's kind of it's kind of an insane integrity. So that's one aspect of it, and the other, of course, is that because of that, and because you know he has his fans like you and I, but then there are a lot of people who just don't get it, and so he can't command the money. Absolutely, it's a quiet taste. Um, so yeah, I mean, he's got a movie coming out mm, soon uh, with those pictures. It's it's kind of in the can. It's got Christoph Waltz in it. Uh, I don't remember seeing it on the upcoming releases for this year, but that does not mean that it is not some going to come out sometime this year. It just means that possibly the distributor hasn't hit on a date yet. Um, and I'm, I'm immensely looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, it's the one that has, um, you, I think we've talked about it briefly on the podcast before, the one that has a reference to the uh, Holy Church of Batman the Redeemer. Yes. That's right. That's right. You did say that. That, that kind of whits in my appetite, I must admit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I, I, I always look forward to what he's up to. So, um, so yeah, it's good, good so, stuff. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, but yeah, like you say, those two are animators. Yeah. Are there any filmmakers who are, like, for example, how do you feel about, uh, just to pluck a name out of the air, Stanley Kubrick? Um, well, yeah, I mean, that's someone who's got a very distinctive style. I mean, he's, um, and famously, you know, he would, he would, one, he would never leave, you know, the country. So it, what the film he was shooting, he would go to elaborate means of constructing versions of America or whatever, because he just wouldn't leave the UK. And, you know, and then a lot of kind of he he had um, uh, he used a lot of kind of wide angle lenses, which which removes you from the from the um, it removes it takes emotion out of things when you see things in that kind of distorted way. So his films have this kind of quality to them that's um, a slightly different experience. I, I love Kubrick. I mean, I think he's varied, you know. I mean, he's tr- dabbling with all kinds of genres and things. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he's, again, kind of a classic, an old-school director, like an auteur. You can tell from the subject matter, from the kind of look, you know, a Kubrick film, it has a particular kind of feel and quality to it. Um yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I picked Kubrick as a way not just to conjure with that because it's such a, uh, uh, you know, he's such an iconic... I mean, he's kind of the go-to if you want to explain what an auto director is. It's like Kubrick yep. Hitchcock. There yep. you go, off you go, have fun. Um, but I I am not a massive Kubrick fan. 
yeah. if I'm honest. Um, I, f- I mean, what's what the, the two Kubrick films I'm most familiar with are obviously 2001 and The Shining. Those are the two that you you know, both of which... Well, 2001 has a novelization by Arthur C. Clarke, but it was... Arthur C. Clarke and Kubrick worked on 2001 together. So they're kind of there. It's not an adaptation of Arthur C. Clarke's novelization, and neither is the novelization, novelization of Kubrick's movie. The two were developed in parallel with one another as a kind of experiment, like, you know. And Arthur C. Clarke famously was like, that ending, that's a bit stupid, isn't it? If you read my book, it kind of explains what happens. You know, if you'd kind of filmed that, it might not have cost as much. And, you might have understood it, but you know, whatever. So, I mean, you know, Arthur C. Clarke thought that. I mean, you know, that's the point. Arthur C. Clarke kind of developed the story with Kubrick of what 2001 is, and then went, "That's a bit pretentious." <laughs> it's like, okay, so this is a guy who's managed to make a film that is of a, someone's story, and he, you know, it's a quite a pretentious story anyway. And the guy who's written this pretentious story is like. That film's a bit pretentious. You're like, you must be on a whole other level of pretension. The kind of level of pretension that has to be delivered by a gigantic slab of rock on the moon. Um, and then, of course, Stephen King famously really doesn't like this film of The Shining. Yeah, I, well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I like it though. I, I like The Shining. We've had this discussion before about The Shining. Yeah. Um, and, um, I think as a film, um, it works better than as a, an adaption of the Stephen King story. And I understand, I've had a discussion with you, I understand yeah. why it would fail on that. But I think the thing is, you'll always get something memorable in a Kubrick film, visually. Now, you might not like, you know, maybe how the treatment, and, and certainly, you know, there are flaws there in story and things maybe he kind of falls short on. But I think visually, you'll always get something, you know, whether it's kind of the the kind of Doctor Strange love and that cabinet room, um, or it's you know the child on the on the tricycle riding through the enormous kind of hotel um, in The Shining. Um, he's very good at creating these kind of images that are kind of stand out. You know, um, Clockwork Orange, and you know it's just he's kind of there. Whether whether is you know I mean I I think the one that really doesn't work like that I think is the one of the last ones he did. Wait, was it the last one? The Eyes Wide Shut? I don't think. I've never, I've never seen that's, this movie. That's not a great film. And that seems to have lost a lot of the qualities. And some people might love it. But I mean, I just kind of left me a bit cold that. I mean, admittedly, it might be the fact of the actors in it who I'm really not fans of. But still, it was kind of a strange thing. I think he's, you know, that was kind of the, the end of his career. And I don't know, I kind of, I, I, I kind of like, I, I, I like auteurs, I like, I like directors that, you know, are, have a style and something about them. We don't really have that now. So who do you, well, yeah, so on the other side of that coin, uh, who's a, a worthless director? What kind of film oh. do you not like? <laughs> I mean, I like a lot of films, but I mean, I don't like lazy directors. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, ooh. As to names, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I don't... Uh... Well, just name a film, and I'll tell you probably who directed it. 
I'm trying to think of the, kind of the, the recent bad film I've seen. Um, well, never mind a recent bad film, of course. I remember one time that you in this in the, the lounge of the, <laughs> the flat where I was at, we watched uh, George Lucas's Slipstream. That that, that so angered you. Is that film that should uh, not be named? Well, <laughs> Thank you, actually, wise. George Lucas is a kind of a good person to talk about, actually, because uh, yes, yeah, Slipstream is one of the worst films, probably the worst film I've ever seen in my life, and. Uh, I wouldn't even say people encourage people to watch it in some kind of morbid fascination with it. Because, yeah, it almost broke me, I think. I was near to kind of nervous breakdown because it doesn't make any sense. It's a terrible film that seems to have been stitched together with different locations. You know, I think the bit that got me was there's a point where you're suddenly introduced to all these characters of which you don't know who they are. And they're having a meaningful discussion and you're meant to care about what's going on. And for the rest of the film... They haven't, you know, it's kind of, that's bad filmmaking. That's really, it's terrible, seriously. But George Lucas is a, is a good example of someone who, I mean, he is a, you know, uh, he's, he's, he's someone who's very good at bringing people together and creating a thing. He is not the best director on the planet. Um, he, I mean, but that's the craft of directing, I think. You know, he's good at the idea. You know, he's good at, you know, the concept. Um, and then... He's not a visual person himself, but when he's at his strength, he basically goes to people that are much more talented than him and go, right, give me that visual. I want to see this space opera thing. Right. You create these things. Brilliant. He'll bring this team together. He'll make these things. But as the skill of a director and knowing how to, you know, make you care about people. No. I mean, that's why I think the uh, prequels kind of fall down because they just, you know, the magic, you know, that it's, you give, you, you know, it's the famous thing with Lucas, you give him too much power and you get dross. You know, he, he's, he's better when he refers to other people who are, who are better than him. Yeah, I think there is, I think there is a thing, and it's, it's possibly because he came out of the film schools of the 70s, and I think not having, this is the weird thing, we've used this word several times in, so far, auteur, that, um, actually, that kind of person who does everything on a film. Um, I think if you take someone who can do it, you've got someone like Woody Allen. But Woody Allen does what Woody Allen does, and he doesn't do anything else. Um, and, And therefore, that's his limitation. His limitation is that Woody Allen can direct a Woody Allen movie... But if you ask him to direct Death Race 2000, he wouldn't know where to start. Yeah. And he understands and works within that limitation. And that's why he can write and star and direct because he's doing this singular thing that is what he does. But, um, in actual fact, um, you know, my opinion about, you know, I was like, I was, I was, you know, the, the good thing about it was I didn't care over much about Star Wars before they made the the prequel trilogy. So when it was massively, you know, disappointing for a lot of people, it was just vaguely irritating to me. But I was like, and I was like intrigued by, wow, that's a a way to drop a ball. That is, you know, there was almost, if you'd have produced three mediocre movies, that would have been something, you know. But you actually really managed to screw the pooch on this one. Um so that was interesting. But then after that, uh, Keanu Reeves, of all people, made a direct, uh, made a documentary, which is available on Netflix, or right. was available on Netflix, I don't know if it still is, called Side by Side, 
which is uh, detailing the uh, current, although at the end of the cycle, transition of filmmaking from 35mm film print to digital. Right. And and getting the opinions of both sides of that particular argument, and you know it's like it doesn't you know George Lucas still can't write for Toffee. I mean that nothing's going to change that. But putting it's what's really interesting is that in that debate I'm on George Lucas's side of his the, the debate that you know digital is the future and the reason that digital has had its limitations in the past 10 years is because the past 10 years is the birth of digital and yep. that inevitably at some point it's going to be the thing yeah and then you go over to the other side of the argument and who's there christopher nolan who will not use digital right it's like he said never never will i ever use digital i will never making a film on digital well it's called a film you make a flick, a movie on digital, you kids with your toys. And then there's George Lucas talking in a sensible and mature fashion about, look, at the end of the day, filming on film is incredibly expensive and incredibly difficult and incredibly limiting. And with the advent of CGI effects, having a digital product, you know, makes it a million times easier uh, and Robert Rodriguez has, has done the, the whole, he's on that side of it as well. And you're like, wow, George Lucas talking some truth there. And then Christopher Nolan, they go, oh, no, it's not proper filmmaking. And you're like, I, I find that, inc- I find the digital side is just like, yeah, this is inevitable. Let's get on with it. And then the non-digital side just are like, it's incredibly reductionist and insulting. It's, it's, it's a kind of a romantic, it's like, well, I want to use it. It's it's a uh, it, it you know it's a tool really like anything it's a medium and you know things are for the industry and for a lot of things things evolve for various reasons but obviously the kind of there's always going to be people that go well I'm only going to work you know in terms of artistic sense you know well I'm only going to work with paint I'm not going to do digital painting uh, it's the same thing, really. They're, they're always going to have that kind of romantic kind of thing. I can understand. And people are going to feel passionate about that. Mm, I can understand why an artist would want to work with paint, paint, as opposed yeah. to fiddling about with a graphics tablet. Um, I can, I can kind of understand that ethic. You know, you can't. You know, it, it's this. I mean, you know, it's an ex, it's a kind of less extreme. It's where that thing where if you're a three D modeler, like you make three D models in a computer, e.g., for uh, computer games. I think people kind of look down on that. Yet all they are is a digital version of a sculptor who yeah. is held up as a high artist, and it's like, well, okay, so one of these three D objects can only be made with a three D printer to exist tangibly in the real world. Nobody is shaping the clay; they are just, you know, messing about with nerves and what got what not. But then, and then, you know, it meets up in that painting thing. Someone who's done a really amazing piece of digital art is seen as more or less on a par with someone who's produced a physical, tangible canvas with actual oil paints on it. They're seen as somewhere in the middle. What I want to know is, would it really have made that much difference to Batman, uh, the Dark Knight Rises, if it had been filmed on digital? 
No, I wouldn't have thought so. No, exactly. I, 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 don't have that, I don't have that kind of romantic notion with media. You know, it's like, well, it's a tool and you do that and you get you're working to an end. It's a it's a commercial thing anyway. So you're just working to something, you know. But, you know, they're all always kind of these people. They're always people romantics that have this kind of hang ups. And clearly he's one of them, you know. Yeah. But, um, the rest of the world moves on. Oh, I mean, yeah, I'm mean, making it sound like, you know, it's a celebrity death match between George Lucas and Christopher Nolan. There were other directors who were like, oh, no, no, digital, it's just a slap in the face, it's an insult to everything that is good and pure in the world of cinema. Um, and, and it's just like, yeah, your arguments ring hollow because, I mean, this is one of the things that always annoys me about CGI effects and people who, who, you know, say that it's a terrible thing that has happened to cinema. I was like, well, no. It, what it is is that an audience that was already mature and used to a particular kind of visual language suddenly got a very, you know, an infantile a, a technology in its infancy. And, you know, there were people, pioneers, like, I mean, James Cameron is another one. He wants to shoot on digital and he wants to push the technology as far as it will go and then a bit further and that's, you know, again, I mean, I'm not the biggest Avatar fan in the world. Uh, no, but it has to happen. You have to have people, like, come along and do that. Yeah. You know, if you, I mean, I, um, for instance, um, when all the kind of motions capture stuff started happening, and particularly with Robert Zemeckis, you know, at some point after doing, I think it was maybe after uh, the thing on the desert island. Uh, Castaway. Castaway. He then decided, or it might have been... Anyway, at some point after that, he decided that he was just going to not actually, you know, shoot film and people. He's going to concentrate on that. And you've got some really strange stuff he was doing. It was kind of ugly and you know, things like the Polar Express. I don't have a lot of love for that. But without that, you know, you wouldn't have the development of kind of Gollum. You know, you have to have people that are prepared to invest in this technology and early on, it's going to be shaky. Early CGI was pretty ropeable, some of it, you know. I mean, you know, unless it was like massive money thrown into it, a lot of the stuff that followed in the wake of Jurassic Park was a bit dodgy, you know, looking back. But I remember, to... I remember, I remember going to see The Mummy Returns. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> this is how bad, right, I can usually wear CGI effects. If you've got... The thing about it is, what always confuses me is, particularly when you've got a sort of sci-fi or fantasy thing with with CGI in it, is the the thing of when there's a mythical creature, people are oh, the CGI. Oh, like, like yes, you've correctly identified that you know dragons do not really exist, and therefore that. But you know, to do the things that you've done with this shot with the swooping dragon and the you know all of this, that had to be computer generated. But if dragons really existed, would it look like that? We don't, we don't know. We, yeah. we do not know. There are techniques that you can use to make things that are not real look real, and we had to learn what those were. However, having said that, when I went to see The Mummy Returns, there's this bit where there's meant to be this massive army in the desert in Egypt, and they'd done it so quickly that what they'd done is they'd got, what, 50, 60 dudes all dressed in armor with swords and spears and got them to do their like stuff yeah 
and and then they'd kind of taken that little piece of image on the green screen and they'd used like what avid or whatever to copy that image yeah. and then they tightly time shifted it and reproduced it over and over again to get this army of thousands the only problem was that even on the screen you could see that the animation was exactly the same so, like, they, this guy would shake a spear down in the left-hand side of the screen, and then the same guy would do the same thing in the top corner, and you started to realise it was just a cut-and-paste copy of the same piece of footage over and over again. And um, Stephen Summers said, you know, look, I'm really sorry, but the first thing I had with this film before I made it was the release date of the film. I didn't have a script. No actors had signed on. We hadn't got anything. But we had a release date for the film, and you shouldn't make a film that way. And indeed, you know, every time any a studio goes, the next film will be out on this date, and that's all you've got, the film doesn't work. Yeah. Because you can't do that. You know, to get a film right, you have to let it grow organically, not Absolutely. work to this deadline that it has to be out to hit Memorial Day 2016 or whatever it is. Which is why everyone is currently having kittens about the new Star Wars because that has a release date, and J.J. Abrams hasn't even started filming it yet. <laughs> yeah, it's next year. It'll sort itself out. But um, yeah, I mean, I think um, early, you know, it, the, the early CGI. You know, the, the problem with CGI is uh, if you compare it to stop frame animation. I'm a big lover of kind of Harryhausen, and. Um, that stuff has a charm, and it doesn't actually date in the same way. It has a charm. You know it's not real. You know those things are creatures and created, and you are more forgiving visually. So you can look at Jason the Argonist now and still enjoy it. You don't look at it and go, well, that skeleton doesn't look realistic. It's not. It has a particular charm to it, but it's difficult to replicate with CGI. CGI, when you're trying to make something look exactly like reality, our brains are pretty good at determining what's real or not. And so the first time... Certainly the early CGI, the first time you see it, you might go, wow, or something. You might not even, like you yourself, you might notice, pick up on things. Um, but, you know, maybe the second or third time you see it, you kind of go, oh, it begins to look a bit ropey. It's better now. You know, it, it's now the standard now is pretty, I'm talking about the high-end stuff. Yeah. You throw a lot of money at CGI, you know, it kind of sustains and lasts the better, you know, stuff. Because because they're getting better at it. They, they You know, they can do it now that it's, it feels that, sure, it'll, it'll still date, you know. The wife you know. wants to, to weigh in on this. I have a massive argument against what Justin's just said. Well, I've got a comment after your argument, yeah. but you carry on. I have a massive argument against it, and that is a James Cameron classic, and it's called The Abyss, which yeah. doesn't age and is absolutely amazing now and actually looks better now. Uh, yeah, I think though, I think that's the... the um, that's not... The thing about that is, though... It's not aping reality. It's not like a person, you know, a motion cap. It's like a creature. It's a very strange and beautiful thing. We have no comparison to that. If you make something up like that, the watery effect, uh, once you work out that, yes, the effects look watery, we don't have anything to base that on. So, yeah, I agree. That yeah, the, one, of the, one of the things that I would say is because you've got, with the Harryhausen thing, you've got the benefit of the perspective of history. You see, Ray Harryhausen was obviously a pioneer in that kind of effect. But after that, what people did was build a miniature sort of 
uh, hill range or, you know, range of cliffs or whatever it is, and then put a Komodo dragon on it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or, you know, for every Harryhausen, there were, you know, a dozen hacks well, doing bad stop-motion stuff. Yeah. You know? yeah. The, the, uh, it had to evolve. CGI had to happen. You know, we are yeah. we become more sophisticated, and we therefore expect things when we go and see things to believe them. If we're expecting this big film, you, you know, the audience is, it just happens, you know. And so technology has to evolve. You know, it has to... You have to have CGI if you want to tell a big mythological story. What's yeah? What's interesting to me is that um, I feel almost. I mean, I think that I, I was talking about watching The Abyss recently and going, "Wow, this looks like a film that was made like three years ago," and that's incredible. Um, I mean, this is a film of of now that was made in 1989. Crazy. I think I'll feel exactly the reverse way about um, about Avatar in like 2030. I think I look at that and go, God, that was a piece of crap. That really was. You know, yeah, okay, so you did a lot of CGI and it was 3D and blah, blah, blah. But I don't think the film holds up and I don't think that the effects, the effects were there to push a pioneering thing at the time. What's really interesting is the abyss goes beyond that and there's a lot of old school technical stuff that goes on in the abyss that makes the film work now. The thing that makes a film good, okay, is not CGI. You can enhance and you can tell stories that you can't tell previously. But if you're talking about what makes a good film, something that will keep, you know, it has lasting appeal, then, you know, you're falling back on good old-fashioned storytelling, plot, story, all these kind of things. I believe that a lot of people's moaning about CGI is actually a a psychological glitch that... If they noticed that, you know, oh, that's not real. I mean, in the sense that what is happening can't possibly really be happening. But I look at this film and go, well, yeah, but does it look like it's really happening? And if it does, even though I know it's not, then fair enough. I mean, there's a bit in Transporter 2 where Jason Statham flips a car and takes a bomb off the bottom of the car by jumping off a ramp, flipping the car and knocking off with a crane and then lands perfectly and drives away on the other side of the dock. And you're like, well, that's not real. I mean, I know that's not real. And, you know, and therefore CGI must have been employed in the filming of this sequence. It must be there because it's ubiquitous. Do I care? Is it bad? Well, it's bad in the sense that I know it's not real, but is it bad in the sense of visually I can tell what's practical and what's not i can't i can't tell what's cgi and what's practical where i might be annoyed is that that is blatantly unrealistic and i think that's what it is i think people think that the cgi because uh early last year we had mama and people complained that at the end it turned into a massive wonky cgi fest and that, that you know as soon as the monster is revealed in its cgi detail that just ruins the whole film then it turned out that was a practical effect with minor cgi enhancements like to take the wires out um i mean that's just so yeah i think people are more annoyed by writing than they are by cgi but they complain about the cgi and not the writing what i don't like in cgi now is where they use digital actors and they do stuff that it just turns into a cartoon I mean, there's a lot of this. I mean, I like the. Uh, I, I mean, I do really like the, the the recent Hobbit release. But one of the most annoying sequences is a bit in it, where Legolas, it just goes on and on and on, and he's clearly not Orlando Bloom. It's a digital actor of him, doing all kinds of stuff of which 
no one could ever do. It's a computer game. It's a cartoon. And that's what I don't like when people have just gone, well, we can do anything now. So we'll just make people do stuff that is just ridiculous. You know, uh, a bit of like this in 2012, uh, the film. You know, there's a sequence in that where, you know, there's cars leaping through things at the beginning. And you're like, look, it looks realistic in terms of, you know, the lighting and everything else. But now you've lost me because this is utterly ridiculous. And I think that's where it, that's lazy filmmaking. You should still adhere to what makes a good film. Not well, I, think that's, throw I, think, I think what you've identified there, and this brings us to where we actually started with our warm up. And actually, it's a pretty good thing is that there's two. I think there's two spokes to the filmmaking thing. I think that what you're talking about is a, a lazy attempt to generate. Oh, it looks like it's really happening when, you know, maybe a more prudent filmmaker would say, well, there is no way that we can suggest that X, Y, or Z is really happening. You know, like verisimilitude realism is a trick. Um, it's not a, it's not a real thing. You know, you, you're not trying to do, you know, like, um, one of the things that they do on television a lot now with science fiction things, uh, Battlestar Galactica and Firefly famously pioneered this technique, is the news footage shaky cam exterior spaceship shot. Where it's like, well, yeah, you've made it look realistic by degrading the image and making it wobbly, both of which cover up any limitations in your CGI conveniently. Yeah. And it, it's like that. What the, the, the person who put those shots together realised was that because you're used to seeing images like that on the news, when you see it in a sci-fi show, making something look less realistic makes it, ironically, look more realistic. So, oh, famously, famously, they put in, in certainly in the prequels, the Star Wars prequels, I mean, they put in, you know, jolts and shakes of the camera for CGI scenes, scenes you know, because the imperfections of what, you know, we look, we understand. Um, the early CGI and sort of scenes, you'd see these great sweet, you'd know the shot. You'd go, oh, here's the CGI shot. The camera would move in perfectly. And they soon begin to learn that actually what you need to do is make it look like it's filmed and put all the imperfections that you, that in then lens flare, ju- jumps and shakes, you know, because we find that very natural. You know, we, that to us, uh, seems part of the film. And most, you know, most kind of stuff now, there's far more common. You don't tend to get that shot anymore, that that particular CGI thing. But, uh... Yeah, so there we go. Um, yeah, I mean, what, so yeah, so I mean, that's sort of called a perfect demonstration of that. It's like when it's bad, um, a director tries to make something look you know, like they're trying to forensically examine something that can't possibly be happening, and that ends up just drawing your eye to the fact that it can't possibly be happening. Whereas in the reverse, it's like, well, we're going to ape something that you're used to from reality, and therefore you forgive the limitations. And I think that that's the clever part. Clever direction is where it it makes something new. And when we started talking about this, is those directors and people who do stuff, which is like, this is... Uh, you know, I'm thinking of, uh, you were talking about Zack Snyder, uh, doing the 300, for example, and I was talking about Robert Rodriguez doing Sin City, uh, and stuff like that, where they're, they're, they're using digital effects to say, well, this isn't reality. We're trying to present a different 
perspective on things. Not that that always works, because we also briefly mention Frank Miller's ill-advised attempt to do the spirit. Yeah. But, it was a big loss, really, to what that could have been, yeah. It's a, it's a shame. Well, that turned out that way. Uh, so there we go. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean... One of the things that we were talking about, and maybe this is the point to finish the discussion, is that we have reverse opinions about the uh, adaptations of Sin City and Watchmen from a perspective of... like I read Watchmen quite a few times because yeah. I was just trying to get why people thought it was all that in a bag of potato chips. Because, you know, from a writing perspective, it has some good stuff, but it doesn't... You know, if if I was going to pick, you know, it's like if you look at The Sandman by Neil Gaiman, then that is a completely, from a writing perspective, let alone the images, but just from a writing perspective, there are so many surprises and charming bits and moving bits and artistic bits and, you know, just the whole thing. And it's all immensely, although it's dark and some of it is quite horrible, it's it remains likeable. Watchmen is pretty detestable from beginning to end. I mean, and not, I don't mean it's bad. I just mean that you, you don't warm to the characters. You're not supposed to. So fine. Job done. But the things that it says, and you know, I don't find it to say as many profound things as the Sandman. I don't find the twist to be engaging. I don't find, you know, from a writing perspective, I don't think the Watchmen is, is all that it's, I think it's overrated. I think that's the point. Not bad, but overrated. But then when I so when I so I was quite familiar with it and I saw the film and I felt that it was like this curated waltz through right. the pages of the comic book for people who couldn't be bothered to pick up a comic book. I was like, well, that's a bit pointless. You didn't do anything to make it more cinematic. Whereas Sin City, I I only saw the Sin City graphic novels after I saw the film. Um, but I feel that although it was quite close to the the comic book. It wasn't. It felt like a film. It felt like what that Rodriguez had had thought about. Well, how can you know we make these visual metaphors into a sort of a, a collage, a, pop, a visual time bound pop up book of the things that are in the. You know, we want to add an extra bit to the comic book. We don't just want it to be the comic book on the screen. But you kind of felt the opposite way around. Didn't I, you know, I, I just thought, it was, to me, it was very, very literally translated. And um, I thought that, and I'm a big fan of noir, and I do like Sin City, but it's obviously very kind of simplistic and striking. And I thought it, it perfectly translated that, you know, but in a way that, I mean, I agree, I, I agree that Rodriguez is probably a much better director than Zack Snyder. Okay. Um, but I think in this regard, I thought it was so kind of literal that it left me a bit cold watching it. I felt like it was uh, it, it needed to be more film-like. We obviously saw something in it, though I didn't. Um, whereas The Watchmen, um, and I'm a big fan of The Watchmen, and I like it because of the kind of history and the understanding of and the what-if nature of it. I, I really kind of get that. Let's treat the genre of superheroes as if it actually happened and the, and it, it's actually, you know, the grimness that, that, that comes with it. And I like that. And the Watchmen film kind of translates that, okay, there's the, the sex scene is kind of uncomfortable and 
in probably needs to be removed from it because that was kind of I didn't like that part of it. But the rest of it, I thought beautifully kind of, you know, and I liked the changes they made uh, to the uh, uh, to the whole grand plot of it all. Um, but then, you know, it, I think that's that's just because I, I I guess it's because I prefer the Watchmen graphic novel than I do Sin City. Maybe it's that I don't know, but yeah. I, I um, uh, and yeah, it's bleak and horrible, Watchmen. But you know, that's that's the story, and that's uh, and I thought that those characters came alive from the page, um, as I remembered reading them. So, yeah, I mean that's I mean that's one of the things about it. I mean yes, I mean actually, Watchmen does have, you know, Jackie Earl Haley does a great job, um, and and um, the actor whose name I cannot remember who plays the comedian. Who yeah. also plays Sam and Dean's dad in uh, in Supernatural? He Jeffrey Dean Morgan. There we go. See, if I, I knew if I said enough things he was in, I would remember the actor's name. He does a great job as the comedian. Oh, was, uh, the, that actor was amazing because that's a difficult role to play to capture, and I thought they got him spot on personally. So yeah, so that those those the acting was good. The film was, and I just yeah I. I don't know. I think there is a point at which, um, and people have said this before, an adaptation can be too reverential. Oh yeah, and absolutely. I, I believe that the watch. I don't. That's just my my opinion. I think Sin City does fall down on that as well. You know, it's pretty much you know scene for scene. You know, um, I, I'm you know I think all, both of those films. I mean, I can enjoy. I mean, but I am. I am less, I think, you know, it's good to have two distinct mediums. I think it's, it's, uh, if you translate things directly too much, you can kind of, this point of like, what's the point really? Um, and I think that, um, uh, there is a danger of doing that. 300, you know, is pretty much, you know, page for page, image for image. And again, that, another Zack Snyder film left me a little cold. It's kind of visually striking, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's so visual a medium that you forget the human quality that you're meant to care about the people on the screen. So I think there's a danger when you take it too far. Yeah, I, I, I would, I would agree with that. I think that it's definitely, I mean, again, it's that kind of thing of pioneering again. I mean, it's interesting, uh, maybe as a final note to talk about Zemeckis that, you know, he had Polar Express and then I, I can't remember if he did a film in that vein which was a massive success. I don't believe that he did, because uh, he did the, the Christmas Carol. Did Beowulf, which wasn't Beowulf is another one of those films you kind of go, well, this would be fine if it was live action, and why are you bothering with all this? Yes, that's you know, true. Capture. And then the thing, this actually killed this animation studio. Last year, he released a film which you've probably not even heard of, but it is available on Netflix called Mars Needs Moms. Oh God, yeah. Watch that film and. It, it, I, it's like, who are you making this for? And obviously now I realise that the reason why they made it and how they made it was for the technology. But there's no other reason why they would make that movie because it is, it's 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 not like kids wouldn't like it. No, because it's too dark. Adults don't like it because it's upsetting their kids and because it's just vaguely weird. Um, it's just, a t you know, and then it, ta I mean, it absolutely, it cost $96 million to make and took $24 million worldwide, uh, and therefore killed Zemeckis's animation studio. Uh, yeah. it would, it, yeah, a, a, a bizarre that's film. That's probably a blessing. <laughs> you 
you know, and he has started making, you know, actual, you know, films again, live action films again. So, you know, which but is you, good. That's where his strengths are. So, well, what we don't get is the fact of, you know, Zack Snyder and, uh, you know, Robert Zemeckis, of course, and all of those people in the process of making those movies that people feel are problematic or even tanked completely, inevitably they will have contributed to the art and craft of the, you know, the next time we see, you know, Avengers, Avengers 2, I'm, I'm without a doubt, many of the effects that we're reveling in as we watch this, you know, amazing piece of technical filmmaking came out of these failures. So you can't really be too harsh on that. No, no, no. It's, a, it's an important part of the process. Yeah. So, yeah, so uh, that's been an interesting discussion. Uh, and uh, if you wish to have have anything to add or, or just wish to ask after Ian, then uh, the place to go to do that, I'm going to have to do this bit now. Oh, I'm, I'm not going to be as good. It's going to be like a second string version of this. You can go to our Facebook page, uh, which is uh, where people go to like us, although uh, they haven't for a while. Um, but there we go, never mind. Um, but, but that is uh, Revenge of the 80s, as in numbers, 80s, kids. Um, and you can find us on Facebook, like us, post on our wall. Um, and, and yeah, yeah, hopefully we could get discussion going. This year, I want to concentrate on getting a bit more community stuff going on now that I've got a little bit more time on my hands. So that's definitely something that's going to go, go on. Uh, but of course, uh, to get a subscription to the podcast, you would go to our Podomatic page, which is, uh, 80s kids, 80s as in letters, E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S, uh, kids.podomatic.com. Um, and there you can subscribe. It's got all the iTunes and all of that stuff. It doesn't have all of our shows on because uh, Podomatic only has enough time, but it does keep the rolling. You know, I mean, Podomatic is about podcasting, is about new stuff. So you can get all the new stuff. If you want some of the old stuff, currently that still lurks uh, upon my blog at leostableford.blogspot dot com uh, another one of my many tasks for this year is to give it its own special home but you can get all of our shows going all the way back to the beginning from there currently or you can even just search the internet archive at archive.org for them um i am not currently doing any other side project so if you want to catch up with me on the web it's leostableford.blogspot.co.uk but justin if they want to find you where would they do that they can find me on my demon art page under the name justin wyatt's w-a-t-t and uh, yes yeah, many examples of my work there so yes um i think that has been a a jolly good show personally i think it's been very interesting to talk about these uh these visual concerns oh, and and get this kind of perspective um well you know it's we, we certainly bring him in for a workplace review uh but uh maybe maybe we should do that uh off camera so for now uh this is Melio saying goodbye goodbye <laughs>